Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And today we are bringing you the ultimate underdog story. That's the story of a group of 1,000 men led by a charismatic professional rebel named Giuseppe Garibaldi who wore gaucho pants. We just want to get that right out there. Of course, that's what I would wear (laughs) if I were a professional rebel. And this group makes its way to Sicily, where they topple the large and strong Bourbon monarch. Their expedition is a success and delivers an enormous piece of the fragmented Italian peninsula into the hands of Piedmont Sardinia. So in this David and Goliath story, again, it's David who wins. And this is a really big step in the creation of the Kingdom of Italy and the unification of the country. So it's kind of the most dramatic event, in my opinion, in that story that spans almost a century. So we're going to give you some background on the Risorgimento or the Resurgence, which is pretty complicated. So we're going to try to cut it down to the basics for you. Italy is made up of states, and after Napoleonic rule ends, the peninsula shows some movements toward nationalization. But there are centuries-old divisions between the states. You can even think of Italy today and how different Florence is, say, from Venice. It was even more marked than the differences between them. There are also differences in language and in food, so this isn't a simple revolution. It's not going to be easy. You have to answer the questions of who's going to rule and what would a unified Italy look like and who's going to be leading it. Yeah, which state will take the lead in unifying the country? And will it be under a monarchy? Will it be um, a republic? What's it going to look like? And it's interesting, too, this isn't just a political movement, this um, resurgence. It's also an ideology, and sometimes it's... um, just about the romance of reclaiming a shared history. So um, taking someone like Dante, who is so tied to his own city and turning him into a national figure. He's, right. He's not just a Florentine. He's an Italian. He's Italy's writer. Mm-hmm. And um, taking ancient Rome and the antiquities and making that a, a national thing and not just um, something in the distant right. past. It's a part of our communal history. Yeah. Much of the rebellion is directed against the Austrian occupiers of northern Italy, but the idea of nationalism begins to sweep through all the states. And we have two distinctive varieties of this nationalism that are important for our story. The first is the radical nationalism of Giuseppe Mazzini, who wants to unite the peninsula into a republic. And on the other side, we have the liberal monarchy of Piedmont Sardinia in northern Italy, which is ruled by Victor Emmanuel II and run by his prime minister, Cavour. They also want to unite the peninsula, but under Piedmont rule and under a monarchy. And they're careful and diplomatic people. They support rebel movement secretly. They'll support Garibaldi at times. Um, but it's, it's always, they're always playing their cards close. And they're conscious of their reputation in world affairs. So they're not solely concerned with this unification of Italy. They're um, aware of their position in Europe as a whole. As far as where Garibaldi fits into this, he would seem to be a natural fit with Mazzini's movement, but he's a free agent. 
He's willing to work with the monarchy if it means unification will happen. He's much more tied to this idea of unification than he is to the idea of a republic, a democracy, or a monarchy, or even his own ambitions. He just wants it to happen. Yeah, and he he does work with Mazzini's movement when he's a youth, but he later works with the Piedmont Sardinians. So he's really able to cross both sides here to get what he wants to have happen, actually happen. And let's give you a little background on Garibaldi. He was born in Nice in 1807, which at the time is part of France. It's later given back to Sardinia and the Savoy rulers when Garibaldi was a boy after Napoleon was defeated. And he comes from a family of fishermen and coastal traders. He himself is a sailor for more than 10 years and becomes a merchant captain. So by the 1830s, while he's serving in the Navy of Piedmont, Sardinia, he comes under the influence of Giuseppe Mazzini, who, as we said, is the hero of Italian nationalism. And he comes under the influence of the French socialist Comte de Saint-Simon. And by 1834, he's become a revolutionary. He takes part in an attempt to provoke a republican revolution in Piedmont. It doesn't work out. He's convicted to death in absentia by a Genoese court, and he goes to South America in uh, retreat, goes into hiding. He's kind of a rebel pirate in Brazil, and he elopes with a woman named Ana Maria Ribeiro da Silva, a married woman. They're companions in arms until her death, and he ends up in charge of the Uruguayan Navy. And all the while, he's learning guerrilla warfare in South America. We've decided that guerrilla warfare is our new theme to replace exhumation. He's a professional rebel, and he wears a gaucho costume. In 1843, still in the service of Uruguay, he takes command of the Italian Legion at Montevideo, which is the first of the red shirts. And remember red shirts, because they're going to come into play later on. They win a small battle, and word gets back to Europe about these guys. Alexander Dumas, Pair, uh, helps foster the reputation of Garibaldi. So he's becoming uh, somewhat of a celebrity by this point. And this now famous Garibaldi returned to Italy in 1848 to fight the Austrians. He is unsuccessful, but he's still incredibly courageous and becomes known as the hero of two worlds. But still too scary to the Piedmont monarchy. Uh, You would think this guy, who is now a hero in the peninsula, might be welcomed back into the fold and his Former treasonous activities would be overlooked, but uh, they're not going to go for that. He goes into exile again, uh, including a stop in Staten Island, interestingly enough. And he's finally allowed to return to Italy in 1854. That free agent business that we were talking about earlier frightens Cavour, who wants to bring him back into Piedmont's fold. It's too dangerous to have him out there. Um, you know, he, he could potentially be lured back to Mazzini, the Republican Mazzini, which is not something that Piedmont wants. Um, Garibaldi is, after all, a really charismatic, really popular public figure. So Cavour says, let's fight Austria together. Uh, We'll give you the rank of major general in the Piedmontese army. So he does that. And also, the Piedmont has become more liberal in the intervening years since Garibaldi's been gone. They've gotten a constitution. Things have lightened up a bit. It's not so repressive. So our action really heats up in September 1859, and finally, northern Italy is peaceful for once, and Garibaldi's in the country, and with nothing to do in the north, 
I guess he's kind of bored. He needs something to do. And he's hoping that there will be some action in central Italy. And there sure is something for him to do. Victor Emmanuel II makes a secret agreement with him, basically saying, Garibaldi, you invade the Papal States, and if it works, I'm completely behind you. But if it doesn't, then tough luck for you. The king, however, realizes at the last moment that this plan is too dangerous, so he decides to abort the mission. Garibaldi is really disappointed with this. And Victor Emmanuel II makes things even worse, in Garibaldi's opinion, when he returns Nice, Garibaldi's hometown, to France. Aww. So that's that's got to be uh, too bad for Garibaldi. Piedmont Sardinia is just so diplomatic to Garibaldi, and I think it really frustrates him. Right. To him, it's just so slow. Slow-paced. He doesn't like having to deal with it. And also, he's having some personal issues, to say the least. Um, he's just gotten remarried. His his first wife died. Um, and he abandons this new wife only a few hours after marrying her. When he learns that she's five months pregnant by another man, which Sarah and I had a good 10-minute conversation about this earlier. We're completely <laughs> bewildered by just how this how happened. How that happened. But that's not our story today. So there's a revolt in Sicily on April 4th, 1860, and Garibaldi has had it with the Piedmont's diplomatic tactics. Waiting around for them. Right. He's going to attack the South and the Bourbon Kingdom, and there's nothing you can do about it because he's so popular, they can't stop him. But if he succeeds, he does know that they will be there to help. So we'll give you some stats on the Spedizione di Mille, or this expedition of a thousand. It wasn't actually a thousand. There were a thousand twenty-seven people, a thousand forty-four, a thousand eighty-nine. No one's quite sure. The records disagree. But this thousand was ranged in age from eleven to sixty-nine, and there was one woman, Rosalia Montmasson, who was the wife of Francesco Crispi, a key planner in the expedition. And four-fifths of the group is from the north, a third from Bergamo and Genoa alone. So it's uh, it's an interesting group to be taking such an, a strong interest in Sicily. And most of them are idealistic, middle-class people, kind of, kind of the folks who would go along with that whole idea that Dante is Italy's writer. They're teachers, writers, traders. There are 150 lawyers and law students, 100 physicians, 50 engineers, 20 chemists, 10 painters and sculptors, 3 priests, and 30 naval officers, which is good because they are taking boats. And um, they're a, a really educated and very idealistic bunch of people. And they're all wearing Garibaldi's classic red shirt. Supposedly, this idea of his came from the abattoirs of Uruguay, which is pretty gross. And they're not very well-trained, which perhaps you already figured out from the list of people 150 who lawyers. Come on. Not so much. <laughs> they have rusty rifles. They're, they're a ragtag group. They leave from Quarto May 5th through 6th. And they almost run into the Bourbon Navy on their way down, which would have been terrible. They obviously were not prepared for a conflict at sea, but they managed to land in the western Sicilian port of Marsala on May 11th, where they are welcomed by the British consul. And we should give you a little background, too, on the kingdom of the two Sicilies. It's ruled by a Bourbon monarch. And yes, that is the same French family you're thinking of, uh, their descendants of the Louis. And the Sicilian monarch, Francis II, is young. He's just inherited the kingdom from his tyrannical father, Ferdinand II, known as Bamba. And um, while 
Ferdinand II was very tyrannical. He was also somewhat respected, I guess, just because he was so scary. Francis II doesn't have that much going for him. He's just as tyrannical, but he doesn't have the respect. This is not a good combination. No. So he sends out 25,000 soldiers to defend his new kingdom, but this Bourbon advance guard can't get past Garibaldi's forces. So the Sicilian people, much to Francis II's chagrin, led by the mafia, side with Garibaldi and welcome him. They're hoping he's going to break up these landed estates and get them out of the system of feudalism. The royal army surrenders. So many Sicilian peasants were ambivalent about Garibaldi, but here you have this opportunity for potential reform. You might as well go for it. So Garibaldi proclaims himself a dictator of Sicily, but in the name of Victor Emmanuel, and he heads toward Palermo, where they defeat a Neapolitan force at Calatafimi on May 15th. And again, the Sicilians join in. Hey, you know, we hate the Bourbons too. Let's all fight together. (laughs) And the Bourbon command just isn't that great. I mean, that explains in part why this small ragtag group of non-professional soldiers is managing to topple the monarch's army. Um, but Garibaldi captures Palermo on June 6th, which is um, the big city in the area. And by July 20th, um, with the Battle of Milazzo, he's won all of Sicily except for Messina. So now he wants Naples and maybe even Rome. Which is a dangerous thought, Garibaldi. So Francis, meanwhile, is struggling to regroup. He grants a constitution and amnesty to the Sicilian rebels. He's trying to patch things over, but it's too late for that. And by late August, Garibaldi crosses the Strait of Messina to land in Calabria and advances toward Naples. And it's just a triumph by this time. The Bourbon rule has collapsed, and Garibaldi has won. Yeah, it's it's an easy ride into Naples. Uh, I think Garibaldi might actually be on a train. So Francis flees to Gaeta, and the last serious resistance of the Bourbons collapses at the Battle of the Volturno, uh, which is on October 1st. So Victoria Emmanuel II rushes south to collect the spoils. He and Garibaldi meet at Teano, and Garibaldi hands everything over to him. Yeah, obviously Victor Emmanuel is concerned, um, <laughs> as you would. You would you would expect that this charismatic leader, who's conquered the entire south of Italy, would take over, might start getting some ideas and start thinking, well, I wouldn't mind ruling this part of the world myself. So that's why he's in such a hurry to get down there and stake his own claim. But yeah, Garibaldi is quite impressive. He, he just hands it over to him. And the Piedmont won't even let him govern during this transitional period for the king either. He's, again, too scary. He's too popular. And then there's the idea that what if Mazzini got a hold of him and turned him anti-monarchy? And then there's the chance of a Republican coup d'etat. So the Kingdom of Italy is officially proclaimed on March 17, 1861. We have an almost unified Italy. Uh, after handing over the South to Piedmont, Garibaldi's thousand disbands, he returns to his island home since he's not going to get this job as the king's viceroy. And um, he, he retreats with his spoils of war, which sound kind of delicious, coffee, sugar, stockfish, and macaroni. Which you can't mix together, but I think separately are lovely. We make a good meal as a whole. But his melee feel shafted by the Piedmontese, basically, was the way Sarah put it. And, like, they haven't been recognized appropriately. They don't feel the territories are being run well. The North is exploiting the South. 
They don't institute the expected land reform. And hey, guess what? Consequently, the mafia keeps their foothold there. Well, and Garibaldi feels a little bit beholden to these people who, I mean, he would have believed he was liberating them to to see changes not happen as rapidly as he hoped. And on a side note, Garibaldi is so popular, Abraham Lincoln offers him a Union command in the Civil War. And Garibaldi turns him down, um, in part because he wouldn't have had the supreme command over the Union's forces. Sorry, Grant. And um, Lincoln wasn't anti-slavery enough for him. But digression aside, there are two big pieces of the puzzle that are still missing in this unification process, Venice and Rome. And Cavour believes that a new Italy must have Rome as its real capital, not just not just calling Rome its capital and not controlling anything, but really having Rome. And he even thinks that there should be a separation between the religious and secular authority of Rome. He's he's not anti-Catholic church here. He he thinks that this will actually benefit the church, um, having it an entirely spiritual entity. Um, But obviously this is an incredibly tricky diplomatic situation since loads of countries have interests in Rome and the Pope. And unfortunately, right when this is going on, our great diplomat, Cavour, dies and we're left with what is called the Roman question. So maybe we'll talk about the Roman question a little more later and catch up with Garibaldi and his gauchos, but we're going to move on from there. And Sarah was saying earlier to me that uh, if you're looking for a good account of Italian unification in fiction, you might want to try Lampedusa's The Leopard, which is told from the side of the Sicilian aristocracy. There's also a Burt Lancaster movie, which has an hour-long dance scene. No joke. That's a lot of dancing. It is. But that brings us to listener mail. So today we got an email from Mike about our podcast on Satchel Page. And if you remember, at the end of the podcast, we asked you to send us your opinion on who is the best pitcher in history. So Mike said that a few years ago, I purchased a Major League Baseball video game, and it had two teams of historical legends included in the game. The people who made this game definitely felt that Satchel Page was the best pitcher ever because his ability was ridiculously superior to any pitcher I have ever artificially controlled in a game. Eventually, in the interest of fair play, my friend and I made a no-satchel rule. So we thought this was really funny, and uh, we're glad that some video game programmers out there are definitely satchel fans. Because so were we, and we do think he was, in fact, the greatest pitcher in history. If you'd like to argue with us, feel free to email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Italian history, check out our website at www.howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History if you'd like to come and follow us. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. (laughs) 